0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Exodus chapters 19 through 24. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses, This shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. This seems to me a special sign just for Moses. He met God at this place, and God said, you will meet me again at this place. So arriving again at Mount Sinai, Moses must have remembered God said this. and I like to imagine what he might have thought. You know, Lord God, you worked it out exactly as you said you would work it out. You truly reign over the lives of men. Here I am back at Sinai, at the exact spot where I told you four times, please send someone else. And you didn't strike me down. You didn't give up on me. You did get a bit angry at me. And I'm glad, or I never would have gone back to Egypt. Even there, I was ready to give it all up when Pharaoh refused my requests and put the people to harsher labor, beating them, making the work impossible. I was ready to give in then. What did I say? I remember I said, why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to the people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Again, you didn't give up on me. You encouraged me, reminding me that this was a promise made long ago to Abraham. This is about your vision, and these are your people. Still I was afraid, and I said again, Behold, I'm unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? But you gave strength to my heart, and you gave me a voice through Aaron, and look where we are now. I mean, look at the people. At the mountain, last time it was just me and my sheep. There's an entire nation out here now. And here we are, just as you said, I mean, who could believe it? I'm sure Moses would have said it better than that and had deeper thoughts than that. He's so interesting to think about as a reluctant leader, the one who believed he had nothing worth saying and he didn't know how to say it anyway, the one no one would follow. Now to be standing at Mount Sinai with thousands and thousands of Israelites, men, women, and children set free and going home. Moses is becoming the leader that God is making him to be. Here at Sinai, he'll take up the role of covenant mediator. He'll be the go-between, the one trusted by the great king to speak on his behalf and trusted by the people to speak on their behalf. God's ready to cut covenant to establish a legal foundation for this new nation. Remember in our kingdom motif that we need a king, a people, a covenant, a mediator, a land and a temple. That's what we need to have kingdom. And we have the king and the people. In Exodus 19 to 24, we're going to get a covenant communicated through a mediator. I'm going to give special attention to the work of Moses as a mediator in chapter 19. And then an overview of chapters 20 to 23 will help us see the covenant form. And in chapter 24, we'll consider the actual cutting of the covenant. We start in chapter 19, where we see what it looks like to be a covenant mediator. Moses on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments is another one of those sections of Scripture that because I felt very familiar with it through Sunday school stories and sermon references and movie depictions, I was surprised going through it myself by some of the details I didn't remember or never noticed before. For example, how many times would you say that Moses went up on the mountain to speak to God? Once? Twice? Three times? It's going to be five times in this section, 19 to 24, and another two times in chapters 33 and 34. We really see Moses playing a mediator role going back and forth between God and the people. Scholars will say that a mediator was typical in the ancient Near East when making a suzerain-vassal treaty. The suzerain or great king didn't communicate directly to the vassal people. He appointed a spokesman on his behalf as a go-between. He appointed a covenant mediator. Using biblical language, we could also call him a prophet, a covenant mediator prophet. And there are just a few of those in Scripture. They're not calling people back to covenant faithfulness of an already existing covenant. They're helping mediate something new. And so far, we've had Adam, Noah, and Abraham performing this role. Now Moses. Enacting the role of covenant mediator, Moses goes back and forth between God and the people three times in just chapter 19. So let's start with Exodus nineteen three through 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Moses received these words from God for the people, and this is the initial charge for Israel. Having experienced redemption from Egypt, As God says, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel is now invited into covenant relationship with a purpose. Exodus 19.6 is a key verse for Exodus. God is saying, this is my purpose. This is why I brought you out to be a nation. This is why I'm forming you. This is why I want to bring you into covenant relationship. This is your identity. This is your great commission. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we understand what it means to be a nation of priests based on what God said right before that. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And the ancient Near East placed gods in particular localities. Lesser gods over towns and villages, greater gods over capitals of nations or city-states. You know, gods were attached to the cities where they resided in their temples. And the Egyptians had their gods, and the Babylonians had their gods, and the Canaanites had their gods, Hittites had their gods. God makes the claim that the whole earth and all peoples are his. So by choosing out Israel... He is in no way to be seen as making himself a local god, and that's going to be a danger for Israel, and it's certainly the way that other people see Yahweh. They see him as the god of Israel, meaning that he's just the god over that location. But as God's scope is global, so Israel's scope needs to be global. They are supposed to see their entire nation as a kingdom of priests. They will have in their nation a formal priesthood, Still, every Israelite should see himself or herself as a priest of Yahweh. And the global scope of all peoples is a normal theme of God's covenantal commissions. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He told Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And much later he told the disciples of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations. And the scope is global global. And the people of God are his priests to all peoples. What's the role of a priest? A priest worships his God and helps others enter into that worship also. So the role of a priest is to know God and make God known. Making God known through words and through manner of life. The priest models the character of God in his own life and shares the knowledge of God with others. So Adam and Eve are to be the image of God to the world, created in his image. That lived out character is essential to God's commission here. He says, obey my voice and keep my covenant. So every shepherd, every shopkeeper, every baker, every teacher, every homemaker, every vine dresser is to obey the voice of God and to keep his commandments and so image him in their everyday life. As a good priest, they're to develop their own relationship with God through prayer and the knowledge of his word and the fulfillment of his commands, and so also help others come into the same kind of relationship with God. They are to be a priesthood of all believers. Many things are new with the new covenant. This concept is not one of them. Just as God sees every member of the church, the body of Jesus Christ, as a priest who seeks to know God, live for God, and make God known, so also the Israelites were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to make God known. That's their commission. That's Exodus 19.6. Moses then goes from God to the people in verses 7 through 8a. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The people give an initial commitment to covenant. You know, they show an eagerness to enter into formal relationship with God, though they've surely not yet counted the cost or considered their own ability to keep the covenant, which of course is normal when we get caught up in the emotion of the experience We're ready to commit to anything, and this was some experience they were having, you can imagine, so we're not surprised that initially they say, we will obey, we'll do it all. Verse 8b tells us, Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and of course God doesn't need Moses to tell him what the people said, because God heard it when they said it, but God has instructed Moses to fulfill the role of the mediator, and that's what he's doing. He went from God to the people, now he's going from the people back to God. And this completes our first back and forth. Now we consider the second. This is in 9 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'll come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, They shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. God intends to make a great impression on the people of Israel to confirm his word spoken through Moses. I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And here's another one of those details we might miss because uh, we've heard this story retold so many times. How did the people of Israel first receive the Ten Commandments? Well, most people would say on stone tablets, and that's not what's going to happen. The stone tablets come quite a bit later, you know, Moses isn't going to bring those down off the mountain until chapter 32. First, God is going to speak the Ten Commandments. You know, as he says here, he will come in a thick cloud, And speak the word of his commands to impress on the Israelites that these words are coming not from Moses, but from God. And this is a reality we all need to experience. We need to come to God and experience his word for ourselves. He uses teachers and prophets and preachers, and this is good. But there's something missing when we can't say for ourselves that I have read for myself. I have Heard for myself, I see the word of the Lord, and I know it's from God. And God decided at this moment to impress this truth on the whole nation. These are not merely the words of Moses. These are my words, the words of Yahweh. God's going to reveal his glory to some degree, only partially and yet still dangerously. We could say that the burning bush was a man-sized revelation of the glory of God, When Moses stepped up to that bush, he was instructed to take off his sandals because he walked on holy ground. For the nation of Israel, God is going to light up a whole mountain in fire and smoke in a nation-sized revelation of his glory. The ground is also holy. God is holy and just and good, and his holiness is like the fire of the sun, and it'll burn up all that is which is unholy. Israel is invited to draw near, but not too near. It's a very serious business to enter into relationship with the living God. The people are to consecrate themselves for two days, to wash and be clean and to abstain from sexual relationships. They're to ready their minds and bodies for the coming of the Lord on the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Of course, as a Christian, it's hard to skip past that phrase, on the third day, the Lord will come down, since we know that a different time, on the third day, the Lord rose up. Yeah, I don't know if we're supposed to make that connection, but it's really hard not to. So Moses goes back down the mountain, and he tells the people to consecrate themselves and be ready for the third day, just like the Lord told him. And this is what happened next. This is 16 to 20. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I felt tremors of an earthquake once that put cracks in our hotel wall. Very unnerving. You know, have, have you stood outside in a lightning storm? Or seen the dark clouds of a tornado or a hurricane approaching? Have you watched the waves pound against the rocks and the trees bow down in the wind and the rain? How do you describe that feeling of raw, natural power? This is not natural. This is more than natural. This is supernatural. God Almighty lets forth an infinitesimal degree of his power onto Mount Sinai so that the Israelites might experience the God of all creation, the Holy I Am. Ancient Near Eastern gods like Baal were identified with the thunder and lightning and dark clouds of the storm. This was an exceptional storm, the winds blowing so strongly over the crags of the mountain that it shrieked like trumpets. And the very rock shook. And the great difference between God and the gods of the people is that those gods were thought to be the storm. The thunder and the lightning and the cloud was Baal. You know, he was the phenomena. The God and the storm were one. Our God unleashes the storm. He is not the cloud, He is present in the midst of the cloud. And unlike the idols of the people, He speaks with words that can be understood. And one more time, God called Moses up to himself with words for the people. This is in 20 to 25. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. God has impressed the awesomeness of his power on the people of Israel. And he has affirmed Moses in his role as mediator prophet. He's invited Moses to come back again with his brother Aaron and to receive the words of the covenant. Before they come up, God will speak to them the Ten Commandments. And that's how chapter 20 is going to start. God spoke all these words saying, you know." and then he speaks forth the Ten Commandments. And after hearing the Ten Commandments, this is how the people respond. This is twenty eighteen to 21. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God is come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. I've heard it taught that this request of the people shows a deficiency on their part, that they shouldn't have asked for a mediator, that it's from a lack of faith or a misunderstanding of God's character. And there may be some scripture that supports that um, negative view of the Israelites here. I can't think of it. Nothing's coming to my mind. And in fact in Deuteronomy 5:28 God affirms the people concerning this request saying they have done well in all they have spoken. God intended to overawe the people. He did not want them to come up to him. He wanted them to experience the magnificence of his holiness and the raw power at his fingertips. Still even as he impressed upon them the fear of the Lord, we see an interesting tension in the relationship between God and man. Do you hear the oddity in what Moses said in verse 20? Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So did you catch that? Why is that odd? Do not be afraid. God has come that the fear of him may remain with you. That seems a bit contradictory. He's saying don't be afraid, but... The whole point of this is that fear might remain with you. So how do we understand this relationship with God where his fear remains on us and at the same time, we're not afraid? You know, this has to do with being drawn into real relationship with God. Real relationship in which we are loved by God and love God back drives out fear. You know, When that relationship is achieved, we're not going to have to be afraid. So how is that fear driven out? Somehow we know we're secure in relationship with God. Somehow we come to this knowledge that we are made acceptable. Somehow we know that if we run into his arms, he will not strike us down. So, That's the removal of fear. And yet his holiness is as the sun consuming sin, and I'm sinful, shouldn't I be expected to be burned up? And if I do not burn up, it's not because I become holy. I know I'm not. It's because God has found some way to remove the effects of my sin in relationship with him. He's dealt decisively with the unholiness in me without consuming me. So I can approach God. But if I approach God without a sense of awe and fear, then I don't really know God. By making himself knowable and approachable, he must mask his glory. But if he masks his glory, then there's something about him I don't know. You know, if my father is a man of great influence and power, but I only know him as the guy who wears slippers and kicks a ball around with me and tells great bedtime stories, then do I know my father? Well, I know a side of him, and it might be a side of him that other people don't know. But I don't know him fully. To fully know him, I need to know of his power and his influence. To fully know God is to know the fear of the Lord and to also not be afraid. There's a scene from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings in both the movie and the book, either one. It's an interaction between Gandalf and Bilbo. Gandalf does not show his power among the hobbits, He's happy for them to see him as a common magician and inventor of fancy fireworks. It's probably the only way for him to enter into relationship with them, hobbits not being fond of mystery or adventure or change. So by cloaking his glory, Gandalf is able to enter a personal relationship with Bilbo. But in doing so, he must hide part of his true self. So early in the story, Gandalf just about succeeds in convincing Bilbo to give up out of his own free will the ring of power that has this hold on him, to give it up for his own good. But the ring distorts Gandalf's motives in Bilbo's heart. So Bilbo turns on Gandalf, questioning his motives. Kind of like when we question God's motives for us. Well, if you want my ring for yourself, say so, cried Bilbo. But you won't get it. I won't give my precious away, I tell you. His hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. Gandalf's eyes flashed. It will be my turn to get angry soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. And he took a step towards the hobbit and he seemed to grow tall and menacing. His shadow filled the little room. And in that one instance, you're reminded that Gandalf is no mere man. He is a being of much greater power. I think we often forget with whom we speak when speaking to God. He has made himself so personal. He has made us to feel his compassion. He's cloaked his glory that we might enter into relationship with him. He speaks with us. He invites us to walk with him. He became the word in the flesh, lifting children onto his lap walking with his disciples, comforting Martha, telling John to look after his mother. He's relatable and kind and generous, and he's invited us to not be afraid. And so we presume on him and on his motives. We forget that the lamb is also the lion. We forget that this man who can lift a child on his lap with great gentleness and compassion created all things, John 1.3, and by the power of his word upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3. The disciples were shaken by this reality when he stood up in the boat and with one word stilled the wind and the waves, and that's nothing for him. You know, By one word, he brings galaxies into being or takes them out again. If the fear of God doesn't remain on our hearts then we've forgotten who God is. On Mount Sinai God invited the Israelites to not be afraid while at the same time impressing on them the fear of his magnificence. You know how how do I explain this? Right now I'm trying, but right now as I'm talking my soul tingles, you know, I'm just I'm electrified thinking of the awesome power of God, and there's there is fear in my heart as I think the fact that he could snap his fingers and everything ceases to exist. the fact that he is so holy and pure and awesome he is God is numinous, he's awe-inspiring he's grand, he's fearful, and yet i, I at the same time, I have no sense that he has turned that fearfulness on me. He might rip out my sin, but he would not rip out me. He has made me acceptable. I'm his. Do not be afraid, but let the fear remain on you. God, uncloaking the power of his glory and fire and smoke on Mount Sinai, communicated to Israel, Moses is my mediator, And these words are mine, not his. Let's turn now from our focus on Moses as covenant mediator to our focus on the covenant form. I'm not going to read through the Ten Commandments now in chapter 20 or look at the detailed laws in chapters 21 to 23. I'm going to wait and discuss the nature of Mosaic laws when we get into Leviticus. And I'll go deeper into the Ten Commandments when we come to the second version given in Deuteronomy. What I want to do here with Exodus 20-23 is consider how this text is modeled after a second millennium suzerain-vassal treaty. God is communicating through a known form. And remember from our past lessons that the second millennium suzerain-vassal treaty contained these seven elements. A title, which is the name or name of a great king and any titles he liked to go by. Historical prologue, a statement about the king's historic relationship with this particular vassal people. Stipulations, and these are commandments, the do's and don'ts of the agreement in a basic form and in a detailed form. Deposition and regular reading, where the treaty should be kept and how often read. Witnesses, and this was usually a long list of gods. Blessings, what the king will do if covenant is kept and seven curses, what the king will do if covenant is broken. This written covenant is then ratified by a cutting of covenant ceremony, which includes a sacrifice and an oath by the vassal. The Ten Commandments start with this preface in Exodus 22. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These are the first two elements of suzerain vassal treaty. The title... I am the Lord your God, you know, I am Yahweh, Elohim, and a very short historical prologue, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, it's, it's short, but it's quite important. And When we think of the Pentateuch as covenant, all of Genesis is a historical prologue teaching us about the relationship between God and human beings, and specifically between God and Israel. But this short prologue, that I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, will be a regular summary of that relationship through the Pentateuch. God established the Passover meal and the Feast of Booths in Jewish culture to teach the people to look back to the Exodus as a defining moment in what it means to be the people of God, redeemed out of bondage. Similarly, in the New Covenant, we're given the Lord's Supper, teaching us to look back to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our defining moment. You know, also redeemed out of bondage. We look back to the cross, they look back to the Exodus. After the title and historical prologue in Exodus 22, we get a list of basic stipulations in Exodus 20 verse 3 to 17, we know them as the 10 commandments. These are the basic stipulations of the covenant And when Moses goes back up on the mountain, he receives a more detailed list of stipulations. That's Exodus chapter 21 to 23, covering a variety of topics from slavery to personal injury law to theft to protection of of the powerless to laws of justice to farming to feast days to conquest of the land. None of the subjects addressed are addressed comprehensively. We get just a few examples from many categories of law. There's more to come in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. And that's one of the characteristics of Mosaic law. The laws are given in sections in the midst of narrative. And the laws come with a lot of context. To know the law of Moses, a scribe can't just memorize Leviticus. A scribe has to know each book of the Pentateuch, and he has to know the whole story and where the sections of law come in the story. The laws not given in one big, abstract codebook. Study of Mosaic law requires study of the narrative context in which the different sections of law are found. Law must be understood in the context of God's story with his people. Now the next element, witnesses, are not called for in this covenant, which is an odd since witnesses in ancient Near Eastern covenants consisted of gods and goddesses and God wouldn't call gods and goddesses as witnesses. We do have a reading of the law. Exodus 24-4 tells us Moses wrote down all the words of the law. Then in verse 7, we're told he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. We do not, however, have a deposition of the law because we do not yet have a temple in which to deposit the law. God does have that in mind and will instruct Moses in chapter 25 to make a special container called the Ark of the Covenant in which to deposit the covenant law. And one point of interest that comes up here is the question about the two tablets that we're going to get later. Scholars have long wondered whether there was significance to why God gave Moses two tablets instead of just one, you know, or maybe three. You know, why two? And the most common thought is that one tablet contains the first half of the Ten Commandments that focus on loving God, and the other tablet contains the half that focuses on loving your neighbor. And that definitely works theologically. You know, that's a good observation. Though the work of archaeology uncovered an interesting detail that suggests a different option. Suzerain-vassal treaties were always made in two copies, one for the suzerain and one for the vassal. So the whole covenant is written on both. Both contain the whole thing, and one copy would go into the temple of the vassal's main god and the other into the temple of the suzerain's main god. So though we, we still don't really know, I think the best informed guest is that the two tablets each contain the whole covenant. And since there is only one true God, both copies were to be placed together into his temple. So we've covered all the elements except blessing and curse. And we don't have separate sections for blessing and curse here in Exodus. Deuteronomy is much clearer about that. But we do have the idea of blessing and curse in twenty-three twenty to 33, where stipulations are given about entering the land. For example, twenty-three twenty-five to 27 gives us the idea of blessing. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And we could understand verse 32 to 33 as the curse. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So now we have a covenant, more or less in the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. And to make the covenant formal, we need to ratify it with a sacrifice and an oath. And this happens in chapter 24. This is covenant ratification. Remember that the Hebrew does not say that God makes covenant, but that God cuts covenant. The Hebrew verb used is cut. The ancients assumed that covenant would be ratified by the sacrifice of an animal, which symbolizes the curse that comes on the vassal if he breaks covenant. So walking through the animals in Genesis 15 was meant to symbolize Let my body be cut in two, like these animals, if I break covenant with you, O great king. The shocker in that case was God himself walked through the cut animals. And here we'll have to see what adjustment Moses makes to the normal ceremony, since it's not just one person, but a whole nation that is asked to make the oath. Let's read the ceremony as it's recorded in Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Moses adjusted the ceremony by sprinkling blood on the people of Israel instead of having them walk through cut up animals. And it sounds like a wise time-saving change to the normal ritual. And in response to the hearing of the covenant and on the basis of the sacrifice of the animals, the people repeat what they first told Moses after his very first trip down from talking with God. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's verse 3. They say it again in verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And the repetition of the oath stands out. Even with the blood of the covenant freshly sprinkled on them, they do not hesitate. And remember when the text here says, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has cut with you in accordance with all these words, no one is thinking of atoning blood or the blood of redemption. This is the blood of the curse. Let our blood be sprinkled out if we break covenant with you, O Lord. That's what they're saying the blood on them is their blood and in the excitement of the moment you know we're tempted to believe them you know maybe they believe themselves that they're going to do everything that god says but in the next month you know they're going to break this covenant in a spectacular way as a whole people the law cannot be kept no matter how willing the heart is human flesh is too weak This is why the language blood of the covenant has taken on a new meaning for us. Through the rest of the Old Testament, this idea is developed. In Jesus Christ, it's been made clear that he must take the curse for us to ensure our acceptance in covenant with God. We can strive to be obedient, but only because the Lord does not require our success. He has found another way through the blood of the covenant and this truth it is already present in Moses even if it's not the idea here in Exodus 24 God walking through the covenant in Genesis 15 taking the curse on himself and the blood of the lamb already introduced in the yearly Passover which turns away God's wrath you know these are it's setting us up to understand the blood of the covenant is necessary to cover us so that we might be acceptable because we're never going to live out the covenant no matter how enthusiastically we promise to do everything that God tells us to do. So in conclusion, Moses heads up on the mountain a fifth time in 24-9. Aaron and the elders go up with him. And incredibly, in twenty-four ten to 11 we're told they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. You know, as clear as the sky itself. And you know, it reminds you of... Ezekiel, and Revelation. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank, and they entered into a fellowship meal with the Lord, or before the Lord. Moses goes up further with only his servant Joshua, and then Moses goes up even further alone by himself. And Moses had already written down all the words of the covenant, but God wants to give him stone tablets with the law inscribed and God plans to come and dwell in the midst of his covenant people. And for that, we need a temple. So God is going to give Moses the pattern for a tabernacle, a mobile temple for a traveling people that will end this lesson. Now with Moses on the mountain and the Israelites gazing up, wondering what will become of him. Here are the last two verses of Exodus 24 verses 17 and 18. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at ObserveTheWord.com.